Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. The end of a cold and windy week. Fresh snow on the mountains, the usual desert chaos of everything blowing away that's not locked down to the ground. I used to walk by some years ago when it was between my own place and the canyon where I liked to take my evening walks and whenever it was windy the main outdoor furnishing of this home's backyard one of those enormous Costco trampolines would either be floating through the sky like a low-rent Goodyear blimp or face down on the road with its nets and aluminum legs all tangled and bent. This went on for years. It never occurred to the occupants that they could chain that thing to the ground. to the fence or to the wall of the house or just get rid of it. After a number of years and probably a couple of dozen airlifts, the miserable thing could barely stand up when the wind was still. The netting was destroyed, the whole contraption lopsided and forlorn. It is gone now, of course. That humble little house sold a few years ago, probably uh, for a million dollars. Now it's an Airbnb, as far as I can tell from the circa 2015 Instagram look of the joint. But the vacation rental people can never completely strip the wild character away from the high desert. They cannot stop the sandstorms. They cannot stop the rattlesnakes, the scorpions crawling daintily up the edge of a throw pillow branded with some banal phrase electronically embroidered in an Indonesian sweatshop. As climate change gets wilder and crazier, they also can't stop the mudslides and the flash floods or the months of 120 degree temperatures. Or the power grid collapses, or the wildfires that scorch down to the sandy ground, war all the time. (coughs) 
What do you know about John Muir? We have a dopey little cliche version of John Muir in our minds if we have any knowledge of him at all. An old man with a long white beard, a sort of beatific grin, standing amongst the granite boulders, black and white. Maybe some meaningless quote on the welcome tourist sign like up in Mammoth Lakes. I can't remember what it says, but it's something simple-minded like, Here are the mountains, and so are you. John Muir, 1895, etc. But as usual with real human beings who achieve something over the course of their lives, there's a lot more to John Muir. The skinny old man in his steampunk hat was just the last phase when he was well known to the world. Well known for being the leading figure in wilderness conservation Those who knew John Muir are those who read his own autobiographical words today. Know that he was many things over many years. A human trove of Scottish folklore and balladry, which he sang in a strong, clear voice alone or around the fire with friends. A manic inventor, creator of endless mechanical clocks and gimmicky devices like a bed that would lift up and throw him into the waking world at a set time every morning. He was a product of the 19th century part of the Industrial Revolution. farm boy scholar who studied at the University in Madison, Wisconsin, and then went on to medical school before his distracted mind decided to abandon that too. A biblical skeptic who could recite the Holy Bible chapter and verse, and a modern scientist of botany and biology and geology who embraced the supernatural mysticism of a wilderness prophet. An extremist in general. John Muir loved extremes. He loved to be up on deck 
during the wildest storms of his many sea voyages. He loved the mosquito-clouded malarial swamps of the deep south. And of course, he loved the wild Sierra Nevada like no other place on earth. With good reason. There's nothing else like it anywhere. But this mountain man who first grew up in damp and rugged Scotland and then the flat green woods of Wisconsin also loved the American desert. In a time when even naturalists and environmentalists looked at the desert with scorn and disgust, John Muir saw the naked beauty of it all. John Muir saw the macro and the micro. He also subscribed to the then-fashionable belief that dry desert air is a miracle tonic for the human body. It was a belief that would come to fruition in the tuberculosis lunger spas of New Mexico and later Palm Valley. What we now call Palm Springs. John Muir was an early white visitor to Palm Springs in the year 1905. And as usual, he picked the most extreme time to show up. Daytime temperatures reached 120, but the nights were easy. After a short stay at Wellwood Murray's Palm Springs Hotel, Muir decided to instead camp up the canyon amongst the palm trees and the gurgling creek. Nights here, as usual, were spent around the fire. And as usual, the party entertained by Muir's singing the old Scottish ballads and telling tales. It is said that Muir learned everything he could about the country from the Cahuilla Indians who retrieved him from the train station and an uncovered wagon pulled through a sandstorm by two old Mustangs. He had made the trip for his daughter Helen's sake, although he clearly enjoyed the low desert. Helen was suffering from a lung ailment. And as recent waves of disease proved, people do tend to keep their lungs drier when out here in the clean, dry air. It's a healthy climate. As evidenced by all the hundred-year-old people enjoying golf courses and steakhouses in Palm Desert and Rancho Mirage. Helen Lillian Muir was apparently revived by the desert air, to the point that her father then assisted with her move to open desert full-time. 
in the Mojave Desert settlement of Daggett. Still a small settlement today. About midway between Barstow and Newberry Springs on Route 66. John Muir paid regular visits to his daughter coming down from the Sierras or from the fruit orchard and Martinez where he lived and worked during his more settled years with his wife Louisa and his father-in-law who owned the farm. But on one of those visits to the Mojave in December of 1914, John Muir came down with a pneumonia. And the desert air did not do the trick. Not this time around. When his condition worsened, he was taken to the hospital in Los Angeles, where he passed away at the age of 76. What a miserable place to die after a life lived in nature. Of course, his family and the doctors meant their best. They always do. But death comes for all of us. And for a human being who loves the natural world, death should never come in the creepy chambers of a hospital where confused ghosts ever walk the halls. But we can trust that John Muir's many decades of living and working in the wilderness was enough to carry him through with dignity to the other side. Where, you can imagine, he continues in his evening reverie of sitting alone at a campfire in the wild woods of the high Sierra reading Emerson by Firelight. Soundscapes by Red, Red Blue Black Silver. Silver.
Let us now enjoy the words of the man himself, John Muir, writing not about the Sierra Nevada this time, but of our own wild mountains of Southern California, the ones that serve as barrier to the Western Mojave Desert. saying so much for human culture in my last perhaps I may now be allowed a word for wildness the wildness of this Southland pure and untamable as the sea In the mountains of San Gabriel, overlooking the lowland vines and fruit groves, Mother Nature is most ruggedly, thornily savage. Not even in the Sierra have I ever made the acquaintance of mountains more rigidly inaccessible. The slopes are exceptionally steep and insecure to the foot of the explorer, however great his strength or skill may be. But thorny chaparral constitutes their chief defense. With the exception of little park and garden spots not visible in comprehensive views, the entire surface is covered with it, from the highest peaks to the plain. It swoops into every hollow and swells over every ridge, gracefully complying with the varied topography and shaggy, ungovernable exuberance. Fairly dwarfing the utmost efforts of human culture out of sight and mind. But in the very heart of this thorny wilderness down in the dells, You may find gardens filled with the fairest flowers that any child would love. An unapproachable lens lined with lilies and ferns, where the oozel thrush builds its mossy hut and sings in chorus with the white falling water. Bears also. And panthers, wolves, wildcats, wood rats, squirrels, foxes, snakes, and innumerable birds. All find grateful homes here, adding wildness to wildness and glorious profusion and variety. Where the coast ranges and the Sierra Nevada come together, we find a very complicated system of short ranges. The geology and topography of which is yet hidden. And many years of laborious study must be given for anything like a complete interpretation of them. 
The San Gabriel is one or more of these ranges, 40 or 50 miles long and half as broad, extending from the Cajon Pass on the east to the Santa Monica and Santa Susana ranges on the west. Mount San Antonio, the dominating peak, rises towards the eastern extremity to a height of about 6,000 feet forming a sure landmark throughout the valley and all the way down to the coast, without, however, possessing much striking individuality. The whole range, seen from the plain with the hot sun beating upon its southern slopes, wears a terribly forbidding aspect. There's nothing of the grandeur of snow or glaciers or deep forest to excite curiosity or adventure. No trace of gardens or waterfalls. From base to summit all seems gray, barren, silent, dead, bleached bones of mountains overgrown with scrubby bushes. Like gray moss. But all mountains are full of hidden beauty, and the next day after my arrival at Pasadena, I supplied myself with bread and eagerly set out to give myself to their keeping. On the first day of my excursion, I went only as far as the mouth of Eaton Canyon, because the heat was oppressive. And a new pair of shoes were chafing my feet to such an extent that walking began to be painful. While looking for a camping ground among the boulder beds of the canyon, I came upon a strange man of doubtful parentage. He kindly invited me to camp with him and led me to his little hut. All my conjectures as to his nationality failed, and no wonder his father was Irish and his mother Spanish. A mixture not often met, even in California. He happened to be out of candles, so we sat in the dark while he gave me a sketch of his life, which was exceedingly picturesque. And then he showed me his plans for the future. He was going to settle among these canyon boulders and make money and marry a Spanish woman. People mined for irrigating water along the foothills as for gold. He is now driving a prospecting tunnel into a spur of the mountains back of his cabin. My prospect is good, he said, and if I strike a strong flow of water, I shall soon be worth five or ten thousand dollars. That flat out there, he continued, referring to a small, irregular patch of gravelly detritus that had been sorted out and deposited by Eaton Creek during some flood season. Well, that flat is large enough for a nice orange grove. Then after watering my own trees, I can sell water down the valley. And then the hillside back of the cabin will do for vines. And I can keep bees for the white sage and black sage up the mountains is full of honey. You see, I've got a good thing. Next day, half an hour's easy rambling up the canyon brought me to the foot of the fall famous throughout the valley settlements as the finest yet discovered in the range. 
It is a charming little thing with a voice sweet as a songbird's, leaping some 35 or 40 feet into a round mirror pool. The cliff back of it and on both sides is completely covered with thick furry mosses. And the white fall shines against the green like a silver instrument in a velvet case. Here come the Gabriel lads and lassies from the commonplace orange groves to make love and gather ferns and dabble away their hot holidays in the cool pool. It is the Yosemite of San Gabriel. to Zizek's and across the Great Mojave Wilderness. This is Desert Oracle Radio and I'm your host, Ken Lane. New soundscapes tonight by our own Red, Blue, Black, Silver on this radio program. Tracks he titled, let's see, Pariah Canyon, Beaver Dam Wash, and San Rafael Swell. You can find more of his music at redblueblacksilver.com and you can find us on the internet if that still exists at desertoracle.com And until the authorities or the hackers or God knows who shuts down the whole electronic banking system You can contribute to the operations here at the radio show by directing a few dollars to patreon.com forward slash desert oracle. We do appreciate your support. And if you're new to the club, postcards from Joshua Tree and stickers and such things will be going out next week. From our wind-blasted little post office, where I was horrified to see the KCDZ 107.7 FM sign had blown down and cracked into pieces this week, right there in the post office parking lot. Part of the cost of doing business in this dry land of frequent windstorms. Thanks to all of our stations for putting this program on the air, including KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, KZMU FM 90.1 and 106.7 in Moab in the Castle Valley, and Valley 104.9 FM from Carnation to Snoqualmie. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us. And good night from the Voice of the Desert.